three, two, one. Thanks for joining us this week on Kentucky Caliber. We're going to be talking about something I call the Great Upheaval. And this morning I had a chance to be on the uh, the Jack Patty Show, which is, uh, I, I'm in Pikeville, Kentucky, but that, that show is done in Lexington, so I, I called in and I really appreciate the uh, invitation from Mr. Patty and appreciate the opportunity to be on his excellent uh, talk show. Uh, again, this is probably the, the fifth or sixth time I've been on there now, so I guess I'm a regular. Anyway, the, the question this morning was uh, in, in regards to the recent mass shooting which took place in Buffalo and another one in California and another one in Houston. Uh, the question was, you know, what's going on in, in this country that would cause uh, so many uh, incidents like this to take place? And, and my answer was uh, the great upheaval. And, you know, when we're, when we're doing the, the talk radio show, you know, we're, we're sort of limited with how much time we can devote to any one topic. And I thought that that one is worth a little bit more um, exploration. You know, I, I kind of felt like that it's worth going into a little bit more detail on what exactly that means that we, we just didn't have time to do uh, with the on-air show this morning. So when I talk about uh, a great upheaval, what I mean is there's a, a sort of a combination of events that have all you know taken place at the same time. And that has created a lot of uncertainty in not just this country, but in the world, although I'm going to mainly focus on the United States today. We'll talk a little bit about the situation in Ukraine, too. But this upheaval, you know, the pandemic is certainly uh, the biggest factor, and that has disrupted uh, the entire planet. It's disrupted business. It's disrupted our daily lives. It's disrupted the government. It's led to over a million deaths just here in the United States. It's led to millions of others that have lingering long-term health problems due to their infection with COVID-19, even if they had uh, a vaccine or, or the booster. And that has caused uh, a lot of people to rethink their lives. You know, we went through a lockdown in 2020. And on the other side of that, you know, folks, all of a sudden, there was a lot of upheaval in the job place where folks were all of a sudden, they decided they didn't like their careers. They decided to change work or to stop working where they were and, and seek uh, other employment or to try to walk a different path in their life. So at the same time that's going on, we had, of course, back in the summer of 2020, a lot of protests sweeping the, the country over the or in the wake of the George Floyd murder. And unfortunately, that is a legacy of the, the long history of racially motivated violence in the United States, which we saw again this weekend in Buffalo. And I realize that the information there is still preliminary, and I will treat it as such, but the preliminary information so far looks pretty solid that that attack was racially motivated, that the shooter wanted to kill as many African Americans as he possibly could, and unfortunately that is not the first time something like that has happened in the United States. We've had the Tulsa race riots in 2000, or 1921, which caused far more death and destruction, Wilmington, North Carolina, New Orleans, uh, the list goes on of racially motivated violence perpetrated against African Americans in the United States. And that doesn't even uh, take into consideration over 4,000 lynchings which took place after the Civil War and the millions of African Americans or Africans at the time who were enslaved 
uh, before the Civil War under the, the institution of slavery, which until after the Civil War was legal in the United States. At the same time, now with that going on, uh, with a, another mass shooting, I mean, here in the United States, there's the, a new war in Ukraine with the Russian invasion, which has put us much closer to World War III than we would very like than anyone is comfortable with, including myself. And so all these things, when you put it all together, it just adds up to very turbulent, very uncertain times. There, and, and when people have a great degree of uncertainty, we also have a great degree of fear. And as Frank Herbert wrote in his epic science fiction novel, Dune, which I, would, I love that book, by the way, I would encourage anyone to read it, fear is the mind killer. That's a quote taken from one of the characters in Dune. And it's as true today as when he, when he wrote it. What happens when we experience fear and uh, intense fear? It intensifies uh, our emotions and it, and it can change our behavior. And I'll cite as an example the mass shooting that just took place in Buffalo, where under a, nor a non more stable society with more stable conditions that's not going through an upheaval, individuals might have just gone to a, a online chat room and posted some nasty comments, and that's it. Or they, they may have done that on a regular basis, or they may have read other people's nasty comments, and they may have thought, yeah, I agree with that. But then that's it. They didn't do anything. Whereas today, and during a time of great upheaval, they think, well, look around, you know, the world's falling apart, and this is the time for me to take action. And so it intensifies an underlying emotion, and that drives actual behavior to the point where the individual or individuals are willing to commit an actual act or an attack, in this case, well, which took place uh, tragically in, in Buffalo. And, of course, our hearts will go out to the families uh, of the victims uh, of this most recent mass shooting here in the United States. Another thing that times of great upheaval do, they provide opportunities for extremists because the extremists will promise you a quick and easy answer to all the problems and to all the uncertainty of the upheaval by focusing on a single enemy that they designate. Um, and I'll give you an example uh, of this. Uh, Greg Locke, who is a, a pastor in Tennessee, has given a lot of speeches, and I, I heard one that was just uh, posted online yesterday, and I'll tell you why I'm, I'm mentioning him in just a second. And he made all kinds of outrageous claims about um, what's wrong with the country, that Democrats are, are murdering babies, which is not true, of course, it never has been. But he continues to make those kind of claims, and he was recently invited to a church in my hometown, which I'm originally from Elkhorn City in Kentucky, and he was invited to the church, a church there uh, a few months back to, to speak. I'm not embarrassed that a church in my hometown would invite someone like Greg Locke to speak. I believe in the First Amendment, and I believe everyone has a right to have their say. I would be embarrassed for my hometown if anyone there actually listens to him, or if anyone there actually believes anything he says, because he is a liar, he is a phony, he is dishonest, and his only goal is to get attention by scaring the daylights out of his listeners. He wants them to be scared so they will listen to him so that he can tell them what they should do about being scared. And this is, this is not new. It's a very old story. You can look back throughout American history and you will find where there are times of upheaval, there, are, there have always been the voices of extremists who come out of the woodworks and want to amass a you know cult-like following to tell their listeners 
who they should be afraid of, and what they should do about it. So it's not surprising that those things are happening today. But um, when I was on the show this morning, the reason I say all that is, is that Jack asked me, you know, what's going on in their country? So my answer is, we're going through a time of great upheaval. And that's the challenge that we face today as a country and as communities within that country and as individuals within those communities, is how are we going to respond to this time of great upheaval? That's the, the challenge of our time. It's probably not the challenge we wanted. It's I certainly didn't want it. It, it may not be the challenge that we think we can handle, but it's the challenge that uh, fate or, or history or time or whatever you want to call it, it's the challenge that they have given us. And so it's incumbent upon us to rise to the challenge, to meet the challenges of our time, and to deal with the times of great upheaval. And one of the ways that we can do that is to recognize that there are voices out there who are trying to scare people even more. So fear is already driving upheaval. It's become a part of it. And there are many voices out there, and Greg Locke's not the only one. Tucker Carlson is another one. There are several others who want you to be afraid. They want you to be afraid so you will listen to them, so their personal popularity will go up, so they can make more money, so they can get more fame, and so that they can tell you, why you should be even more afraid so you can listen to them even more and so the cycle continues. And so I hope that folks who are listening will recognize that phenomena. It's, it's again not new. It's happened many, many times, not just throughout American history, but throughout world history. It's very common in times of great upheaval that the voices of extremism come out of the woodworks to try to gather large followings. To an extent, that same phenomenon took place in Europe after World War One, This is one of the ways we can explain the rise of someone like Mussolini or Adolf Hitler to power because they also lived in times of great upheaval. There were severe political and economic and cultural changes and ramifications that took place in the wake of the First World War. We could do a separate show just on that. I'm not going to get into too much detail on that today, but suffice to say Empires fell that had been established for centuries, long-held ways of life came to an end, and when those kind of rapid, far-reaching, and unexpected changes hit societies all at the same time, it creates fear and uncertainty. And so the extremist likes to step in and offer a ready-made solution, usually in the form of hatred against a designated enemy. In the case of, the, of Germany in the 1930s, you had Hitler who designated Jews as the person they should hate. In the case of the United States today, you've got people like Greg Locke who want to designate liberals and Democrats as the people who you're supposed to hate. So there are some very clear similarities between what those individuals are tr trying to do in terms of methods. and In other words, weaponizing fear to achieve a political objective. Of course, here in the United States... Thankfully, we have more robust institutions and a more well-educated public, despite what people may think. I still have a lot of faith in individuals. On the whole, I think people generally are smart. There's two kinds. There's book smart and there's street smarts. But I generally think that people are smart enough to know when someone's leading them on, when someone's manipulating them. That may not be apparent at first. They may get away with it for a while, but I think eventually the public will catch on and that extreme voices like Mr. Locke will fade away. I really do. I think that will happen over time. But what he's trying to do right now, method from a 
perspective of methodology is very similar to what we saw in Europe in the 1920s and early 1930s. So I just want folks to be aware of that. We are going through a time of great upheaval, and because we're all going through it, we have something in common, right? We're all experiencing this at the same time. So this is a reason for us to recognize that there's there may be other folks feel and, and express their fear in different ways, but we are all we can all agree that we're going through this upheaval at the same time. And that's going to be the challenge for our generation, for this generation now here in the 2020s, is to deal with the ramifications and the aftermath of the great upheaval. At the same time, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the new conflict in Ukraine, which unfortunately is threatening to escalate beyond a conflict just between Russia and Ukraine, this week Finland and Sweden have applied to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is NATO. And I wanted to talk just briefly about why, in particular, Finland joining NATO is so significant. The main reason is Finland shares a pretty significant land border with Russia. If you look at the map, you can see that a major Russian city, St. Petersburg, is literally just a hop, skip, and a jump from the Finnish border. Finland also controls, because of their long, their long uh, not only border with Russia, but also their coastline, access for the North Sea up there. And so when Russian ships want to move out into the Atlantic, they have to pass by the coast, which would give naval forces, uh, whether they were Finnish or NATO, stationed in Finland an opportunity to disrupt Russian shipping. And so those two reasons um, are big strategic factors in why Finland is significant. Of course, Finland fought a war with Russia in 1939. Russia invaded Finland, and at first they didn't do very well, they being Russia. Uh, the Finnish forces actually used their knowledge of their local terrain, which is a, an Arctic environment, uh, very well, and, and fought back against the Russians successfully for several months. And so the Russians went home, reorganized, they came back, and they finally forced, the, uh, forced Finland to sign a treaty conceding some of their territory. So there's bad blood and a history of that between Finland and Russia. And the, uh, the accession of Finland into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which I think will happen, would add a significant amount of land to NATO that borders Russia. I think right now the Polish border with Russia is something like, I don't know, three or 400 miles but the Finnish border with Russia is bigger than that. It's, it's more like five or 600 miles. So there would be a lot of territory that, NATO, that a NATO member would control that borders on Russia. And so that creates more opportunities for incidents to happen, which could trigger a wider war uh, to, to spread beyond uh, the borders of Ukraine and, and to a U.S. versus, or rather a Russia versus NATO conflict uh, writ large, which right now we do not have. Even though NATO and the U.S. is supplying weapons to the Ukrainians and, and money, we're not directly fighting in that war. U.S. troops are not fighting in Ukraine, nor are the uh, uniformed personnel from NATO countries fighting in Ukraine. So right now we do not have that. But the potential for that to escalate is going to increase when Finland becomes a NATO member, which I would expect. Uh, I would expect their application to be approved fairly quickly. And I'll expect them to join NATO, and that will um, 
it adds to the NATO alliance, but it also increases the potential for a wider conflict between Russia and NATO. And that itself is another factor um, which increases the uncertainty of our times. What would a war like that look like? Would it be a nuclear would it be a nuclear war? Are we back to the point where we have to worry about a, a nuclear conflict and the uh, aftermath of that? As I, I did in a show, I think either last week or the week before, you know, the world is is less prepared for the aftermath of a nuclear war than we were, say, in the 1960s, you know, 60s, 70s, or 80s, uh, or even the 50s. And so that's something that we have to worry about. And all of those things generate fear. And the opportunity for the extremists is to say, see, we told you that it's the end of the world, and so you should listen to our extreme beliefs, and you should behave in a different way than you otherwise would have. And that's a danger for folks who are listening um, to extreme voices out there who want people to be more scared and who want them to act a different way because of that fear. What we should realize is... And I think that the, uh, the racially motivated mass shooting in Buffalo is an opportunity to reflect on the wisdom of Martin Luther King Jr. And one of his writings included the idea, and this is, I'm just quoting him, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. And so think about that the next time you hear someone like Greg Locke talking about how that the, the greatest evil in the world are, are liberal Democrats. You won't hear, because he thinks they're killing children, which we're not, but he, he's saying that, that we are. Well, you know what really is killing children? War. You know what else is really killing children? Poverty. Lack of access to health care. Those things kill children all the time. But you won't hear extremists talk about that because it doesn't fit their message and it doesn't fit their narrative and it doesn't fit their pattern of thought when it comes to how we should respond to the great upheaval. And so it's an opportunity for the country, even though the circumstances are extremely difficult, especially when it comes to, to politics. And I know that today is a primary day here in Kentucky and four other states across the United States today, and that will continue throughout the summer with uh, the general election set up for November. And so there's going to be a new Congress, uh, several senators are up for re-election, lots of local races will, will choose new, uh, new faces and new, new people to take uh, government posts at the county, local, and state level. And so while we're doing all of those things, you know, it's in a very bitter uh, environment, a very bitter political environment. And what we've, one of the things that I think we've lost is the idea that the government and American citizens should work together to try to solve some of our common problems. Mass shootings is just one example, uh, but since that, that happened just recently, I'll return to that for a moment. And we have now clearly divided, um, and you can see this every time, unfortunately, one of these mass shootings happens, you'll see that uh, my progressive friends will call for more gun control, and my conservative friends will say, well, we don't need more con gun control, we need more guns. And so we can, I, we can say each other's lines now, Every time this happens, and, and at the end, after a little while, everybody will get tired of that, and, and the status quo will just continue. Nothing will happen, nothing will be done, until the next one, and then we'll start the cycle all over again. But imagine if we decided to, to make changes enough that we could live in a country where citizens and the government actually work together to solve common problems. We can't expect the government to do everything. We shouldn't expect the government to do everything. 
it has a role to play. It has responsibilities that are set out in the Constitution, but so do we as citizens. And just as an example, when we think about uh, mass shootings, specifically just mass shootings that take place in public areas, we so rarely treat that as a distinct and separate topic. Almost inevitably what happens when we get to that point where we want to have a discussion about mass shootings, it gets away from us, the discussion does, and, and it does that for two reasons. One, it becomes overly politicized, and two, the discussion just becomes about guns or shootings writ large. Uh, in other words, it becomes about the right to bear arms, or it becomes about firearms and vi gun violence in general, but we never just focus on mass shootings in public places. And there's a reason why we should, not just because they are happening with more frequency, but because those are one area where we can cooperate to a degree and make a difference. We don't have a magic pill that can just make mass shootings go away. I'm not saying that we do. But take a look back at some recent history. In 1994, Congress passed a federal assault weapons ban, and it was in effect for 10 years. It had a sunset clause. It expired in 2004. It wasn't renewed. So the law uh, ceased to take effect after 2004. But during those 10 years, mass shootings in public places decreased. They went down by about 35%. So there were still mass shootings. They did still happen in public places, but there weren't as many. And one of the reasons why there weren't as many is because that type of attack, a mass shooting in a public place, is a style of attack designed to inflict casualties on a densely populated area. And so there's a very specific type of weapon that you would want to use. You would want to use a weapon that's capable of firing rapidly and that has a high-capacity magazine. Both of those types of weapons were banned under the federal assault bill, and consequently we saw mass shootings decrease. They didn't go away but they decreased. Nobody had their, their, no firearms collectors had their guns taken away. Nobody who had, uh, owns firearms for home protection had their guns taken away. Um, that never happened. It was never going to happen, despite claims to the contrary by my, my friends in the uh, Republican Party. Never happened. Um, but what did happen was that we made a difference. We took a step towards decreasing mass shootings in public places. So, that's one thing that the government can do, but that only decreased them by 35%. And so it's up to communities and individuals to try to deal with the remainder of that. I'm not advocating for any kind of um, confiscation of weapons or disarming of the public. I know Democrats get accused of that quite frequently, and this is one Democrat who does not support that at all because it's illegal, for one thing, because it's a bad idea, for another but I don't support that. And that doesn't mean that we can't enact sensible legislation that could help us deal with problems like mass shootings in public places because we've seen in the past that that type of legislation can be effective, and it has been effective. So it would be in our national interest to renew that legislation in order to help us cope with this problem. Because, you know, think about it. I mean, how it's hard enough. It's hard enough to lose a loved one when they die from old age or cancer or, you know, something that, that we just can't control, right? There's just absolutely nothing that can be done about aging. 
Uh, we're working on a cure for cancer, but we don't have one. But there's nothing we can really do. But we, we sort of, even though it's, it's still terrible to lose loved ones to those type of circumstances, at least we can, we can cope with it by knowing that it was just inevitable. There's just nothing that could be done. You know, imagine how it feels to lose someone you love because they went grocery shopping. I don't ever want to know what that feels like. I really don't. And, and, and I feel for the folks who are going through that right now in Buffalo, who, whose loved ones did nothing except go to the grocery store. And that's why they're dead today. They were murdered because they went grocery shopping. And it's just, I can't imagine what that feels like. And so the idea that, that there's absolutely nothing we can do about that is false. There are some things we can do. We can take sensible measures to try to decrease the likelihood of those type of attacks from happening in the future. I'm not saying we can completely prevent all of them from happening. That's unfortunately not possible. You know, I had the opportunity to listen to J.C. Watts, who was a congressman from Oklahoma when I was stationed out in Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City, and he gave a presentation not long after 9-11, and this, this is what he said. Uh, Mr. Watts said, you know, if in a free society... If a person doesn't mind dying, they can do a lot of damage. And I, I remember hearing that and, and thinking, you know, this at the time we were, we were gearing up to, to start operations in Afghanistan. The Iraq war had not yet started. And I, I remember thinking, boy, you know, he, he's right. And this, this enemy that we're getting ready to fight in the war uh, on terrorism at the time, which is what we still were calling it then, it's going to be tough. Because you have people who are willing, clearly, as they proved on 9-11, they're willing to die. And so it's going to be difficult to win that fight. And, of course, it turned out to be even, even much more difficult than I had thought, uh, not just because of the resolve of our enemy, but because of some of the uh, missteps and incompetence uh, of our own elected leaders who made many, many mistakes uh, in the prosecution of that war. And, of course, that's also a, a topic for another show. But to bring us back to to the, um, the mass shooting and, and the war in Ukraine and the pandemic. These are all things that are creating great uncertainty. And so let's deal with, let's deal with those one by one. What can we do about war in Ukraine? Well, we can help the Ukrainians have a fighting chance. I'm not suggesting ever that American military personnel be sent to fight Ukraine's battles for them. I do think it's in our national interest to give the Ukrainians a fighting chance. Think about how expensive the Cold War was from 1945 to 1991 until the Soviet Union collapsed. Think about how many billions and probably even trillions when you add it all up of dollars we spent on weapons and defense to try to stop the Soviet Union. Imagine if we had supported conflict or we had supported one side in a conflict earlier on like the one in Ukraine that could have prevented Russia from growing into the Soviet Union from becoming the Soviet threat that it was. That would be a pretty good investment. I know a lot of people have raised objections about $40 billion, and that is a huge sum, no question about it, and I don't have a problem with oversight of those funds at all. But that's a pretty small investment if it would stop the kind of expenses and dangers we faced from the Cold War. With mass shootings, we can enact sensible legislation, but we can also begin to address the underlying conditions which lead people to believe that they, in their mind, carrying out an attack like a mass shooting is the way to go. They, this, this shooter thought that this was the right thing for him to do. And I hope that he's prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. 
If New York, I don't know if New York has capital punishment or not. I didn't look that up before the show today, but I think it would be very appropriate uh, in, in this case should the, the shooter be proven guilty in a court of law. And I'm, I'm fine with waiting for that, that process to, to play itself out because we are a nation of laws and we have to let the justice system handle situations like this. As, as difficult as it is, as much as we have an emotional response to want revenge, we need to let the justice system do its work. And the pandemic is still here. It hasn't gone away. COVID is still out there. I'm glad to see that, that more people have gotten vaccinated and boosted and still take precautionary measures such as wearing a mask. I don't wear a mask anymore uh, in public, but I do keep social distances. I've had my, my shots and boosters. I do wash my hands more frequently. So I take the precautionary measures because it hasn't gone away. And there's there's a good chance we'll see a few more surges of the um, of the infection rates. That happened at the end of the influenza pandemic back in the uh, in 1918 and so we can expect we should probably expect to see that happen with the um, with the COVID pandemic as well but let's recognize that we're in a time of great upheaval that that's going to create fear that fear is going to intensify emotions and it may lead people to take actions that in other times they would not have it creates opportunities for extremists to scare people even more and that in itself becomes a vicious, you know, self-reinforcing cycle. So let's work as communities and as individuals to break that cycle. Let's work to break the cycle of fear, to break the cycle of extremism, to break the cycle of hate, which is fueling things like mass shootings in public places. And it also fueled the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was based entirely on a fiction, a 100% fiction created by the Russian government. There are no Nazis running the government in Ukraine. That's a complete falsehood. There never were. And so their entire premise for invading Ukraine is false. And what that teaches us is that when you spread falsehoods and when you spread lies and when you incite hatred against a designated group based on those lies, it leads to violence. It leads to an invasion that should never have happened. It leads to mass shootings that should never have happened. And so this is our challenge to try to break that cycle. We can do it by educating ourselves. We can do it by, and I'm trying to do this myself, to become better listeners, to listen to folks that disagree even though I think they're wrong, to not attack them personally, to not yell and scream at them just because I think what they're doing is wrong. Democracy depends on cooperation it depends on a base level of citizens being knowledgeable enough about the affairs of their country and having the willingness to cooperate with each other, whether they win or lose an election, on how which decisions get made, which laws get passed, which policies get enacted to deal with the problems that have both created this great upheaval and have been caused by it itself. So, I mean, there were underlying factors which led to this upheaval, and then there's the effects the upheaval wrought itself. And we have to deal with both of them. But we can't do that by listening to extremists, by perpetuating the cycle of hate, and by ignoring both of those things as they happen, and by, by just throwing our hands up in the air and saying, well, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing we can do about it. It's hopeless. We'll just tune it out. Um, and, and things will just go on because that, that is a guaranteed formula to make things worse. You know, as, as the old quote goes, um, it's evil enough for good people to do nothing. 
And yes, I, I changed it from good men to do nothing, uh, not because I wanted to be politically correct, but I just think we should we should include everyone uh, in that sentiment. And so I hope that's what folks will do in as we go forward here, not just in this election, but also when we try to chart a future course for the country and our communities, is think about the actions that are being taken by our leaders or by, by voices that have a lot of attention and ask yourself, do they have the communities or the country's best interests at heart? Are they trying to perpetuate the cycle of fear or are they trying to break the cycle of fear? And I would hope that people will throw their support behind leaders, whether they're running for office or not, and, and individuals who work to break the cycle of hatred and to break the cycle of fear. And so that's, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. I appreciate everyone listening, and I hope you have a great day. Come <laughs>